So you've been tracking through the book of Romans for how many weeks? Have you been keeping track? Three months? Four months? Anybody been here every single Sunday? Yeah, me neither. But, you've, you know, life goes on. But you've been tracking through the book of Romans. And what I want to do this morning is kind of capture the essence of where Pastor Rick has been in the last many weeks in the book of Romans. Can we do that? And what I want you to get a hold of this morning is this idea. That the truths that are taught in the book of Romans will transform your life if or when you grab a hold of them. They will transform your life. In the 600s, many, many years ago, long before I was born and even long before Irene was born. In 635, a young North African theologian was sitting, reflecting on the words of the, of the book of Romans, contemplating the sinfulness of his life. And in the context of tears and mourning the condition of his life, through reading the book of Romans, he came to faith in the Lord Jesus. And that young man is recognized in church history. You'll recognize the name. I hope you recognize the name of one of the greatest theologians of the early church, Augustine sometimes known as Augustine. His life was transformed by reading the book of Romans. 1,200 years later in Germany, a young Roman Catholic monk was teaching the book of Romans at the University of Heidelberg. And as he read and studied in preparation to teach, as often happens for those who have the privilege of teaching God's Word, the passages in Romans grabbed a hold of his heart and his life. Phrases like justification by faith, reconciliation, peace with God. And it was in the context of his study of the book of Romans that Martin Luther's life was transformed and changed forever. And of course, Martin Luther then became the founder of what today we call the Reformation. That the very church of Jesus Christ was soundly shaken because one man did what? Read reflected, meditated on the book of Romans. 230 years after that, a young ordained pastor in the Church of England attended unwillingly a midweek meeting where the book of Romans was opened and some of the thoughts of Martin Luther, in addition to the words of the Apostle Paul, transformed the life of John Wesley. And he came to repentance and faith and put his faith and trust in Jesus. And it was John Wesley who stimulated much of the great revivals in England that took place at that time. And, of course, you ought to put the name John Wesley together in your mind with the Methodist church that grew out of his methods and the lives that he touched. And so the thought I want you to get a hold of is that the book of Romans... If you can get a hold of the truths that are captured here, will transform your life. Is that a good prospect? It is. And of course, all of Scripture is supposed to transform your life, so we shouldn't be surprised that we're talking about the book of Romans. But as I've been sitting here and listening to Pastor Rick for the last many weeks, um, I have found myself drawn to consider lots of different ideas, lots of different thoughts. And 
Is this going to work this morning? I got nothing on my screen. So as I've been reflecting and listening to Rick, and I confess that my mind goes off of sometimes what Rick is talking about, because the things that I'm hearing are stimulating thoughts in my mind, and some of those thoughts are the four big things I want to share with you this morning. It's okay when you're listening to a sermon for your mind to go elsewhere, right? Your enthusiasm is lacking. Now... If your mind goes elsewhere to thinking about the Dodgers playing their final game today and the Dodgers possibly winning that game and completing the season with 106 wins, the most they've ever had in their over 100 year history. If that's where your mind goes, that's not a good thing. Okay, your mind. I'm sorry, Dave. But as you're sitting and listening, your mind ought to be contemplating the great truths of Scripture that we're understanding. And this poem captured for me so much of what we've been talking about. Oh, long and dark the stairs I trod with trembling feet to find my God. Gaining a foothold bit by bit, then slipping back and losing it. Never progressing, striving still with weakening grasp and faltering will. Bleeding to climb to God while he... Serenely smiled, not noting me. Then came a certain time when I loosened my hold and fell thereby. Down to the lowest step my fall, as if I had not climbed at all. Now when I lay despairing there, listen, a footfall on the stair. On that same stair where I, afraid, faltered and fell and lay dismayed. And lo, when hope had ceased to be. My God did what? Came down the stairs to me. And that poem captures for me the essence of the book of Romans. Because Paul is presenting to us the great truths of Scripture that Rick's been unfolding for us in the last several weeks. And so there's four main truths in this um, in the book of Romans that I want you to kind of get a, a handle on this morning. Um, the first, well, before I do that, the book of Romans so far, we've gone all the way through chapter five. The first three, almost three total chapters have focused on our need for God's righteousness. And then chapters four and five, the end of chapter three, chapter four and chapter five. Paul talks to us about how to acquire God's righteousness, how to have God's righteousness in our lives. And we're going to move on as Rick moves into chapter 6, learning how to live this life of righteousness before a holy, righteous God. And so as we've made our way through Romans, we've come to a major transition point. And that's why I want you to see these big four ideas this morning. The first idea is this. God's righteousness is needed by each one of us. A basic need in every human life is to have God's righteousness. This is the key word in the book of Romans. 35 times in six chapters, you'll find the word righteousness. And if you've been counting, you've seen it 17 times in the first five chapters. Anyone counting besides me? Probably not. So the word righteousness is the key word in the book of Romans. What is 
righteousness. The word righteousness describes conforming to a standard. Measuring up to a standard. And so we have in our culture rulers. I don't, couldn't find a ruler, but I have this old yardstick. And this yardstick becomes the standard by which we measure what? Yards. I could also measure feet and inches and quarter inches or whatever. But a yardstick is the standard for yards. Three feet equal a yard, right? And so I can use this and determine what measures up to the standard. And what measures up to the standard is, by definition, righteous. It measures up to the standard. So yesterday, on my bike ride, I got bit by a bee or something stung me here. And if you look real close, you can see my neck's kind of swollen. Um, it, it's just like crazy. It's all I can do to keep my hands off of my neck. And so this morning, I went to the medicine chest and I pulled out a box of Benadryl. Now, on the box, it says one or two tablets Every four to six hours. One or two tablets every four to six hours. That's the standard. So what happens if I take a tablet and break it in half because I don't want to fall asleep because it makes me drowsy. I don't want to fall asleep while I'm standing up here. And so I break one in half and only eat half. What happens? Nothing. Because I haven't measured up to the standard. On the other hand, if I think this is driving me crazy and I take six of them, what happens? So standards are very important. And so God has standards. And, oh, by the way, God is righteous. He's righteous in all his ways. He always does what is right. Always without exception. God makes no mistakes. Never. God is righteous. We're never going to get through all this. So, yesterday, I had a a short lunch with my friend Roger, who I had the privilege of leading to the Lord somewhere in the range of 15 years ago. And we were sitting over the table at lunch, And we were talking about a couple from our church in Rancho Cucamonga. Paul and Gail have a beautiful home in Rancho Cucamonga. She has three horses. And they've got this small piece of property. And one of their dreams for years has been to acquire a larger piece of property, a place where she could enjoy her horses. And they talked about going to South Orange County. They were going to go up to the state of Washington. Well, a year ago, they found a piece of property in Wyoming. Beautiful piece of property, several acres, pasture for the horses to run in and and get grass to eat and all that fun stuff. And then several months ago, the doctors diagnosed her with uh, cancer, cancer she'd had almost four years ago and her leg had metastasized, moved into her lungs and her prognosis was months. Last Friday, I got an email from her son that she passed away. So here's this couple, vibrant, alive, active, energetic, serving Jesus. She sang on our worship team. They find this piece of property that is the dream of their life. Now she's gone. 
And Roger says to me, I don't understand. I, I don't understand how God could let that happen. You ever have those kind of questions in life? I have them all the time. I got more questions I know what to do with. And I told Roger, you know, I don't understand it either. But I know one thing for sure. God is righteous. God always does what is right. No mistakes ever. When Abraham, in Genesis chapter 18, was having that conversation with God about sparing Lot and the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you remember the story? And so Abraham's having this dialogue with God. And he says to God, what if we can find 50 righteous people? Will you spare the city? God said, yes. Then he said, what? What if we can only find 40? Okay. What about 30? Yeah, that'll work. 20. You see where this is going. And in the midst of this conversation, Abraham says to God these words. Will not the judge of the whole earth do right? He always does what's right. He's righteous. And so, the whole first three chapters of Romans... Uh, are captured in a simple thought. And the thought is this. God is righteous, but guess what? You're not. God is holy and perfect. You're not. Now that's something to ponder on, I think. To not just go by. Because God has a standard. And He's perfect, and I'm not. And I just told you, God's righteousness is needed by each one of us. Now, if you're taking notes and you have that page in front of you, if you take a pen and just put a big X through the words, each of us, and put your first name there, you understand what there is here that's kind of tough to handle. God is righteous. Roy is not. And so Paul spends his first almost entire three chapters contrasting the righteousness of God with our unrighteousness. And that's why in chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, when you read those words, it talks about the fact that the gospel puts the righteousness of God on display. And verse 18 goes on to say that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and guess what? Unrighteousness. And so... What Paul is trying to communicate to us, because he's got some good news that's coming, what God wants us to understand, or what Paul wants us, well, God does too, but what Paul wants us to understand is there's a righteous, holy God. He's righteous, and I'm not. And then the second big idea that follows this is a, a simple idea, really, and it's the fact that the gospel, the word gospel means what, by the way? Good news. 
So the good news of the gospel is what? It's the gospel message that leads us to wrap our hands around salvation. To wrap our hands around God's righteousness. So the word gospel becomes a key word in the book of Romans. Thirteen times we've seen it, I think five times in the first five chapters. But notice in chapter 1 how Paul uses the word gospel. In verse 1 he says he's been called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel. In uh, verse 9 he says, For God whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son. Paul sees his life wrapped around the gospel. And that's why he goes on and says in verse 15, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. By the way, this book of Romans was written to whom? The church in Rome. Believers in Rome. So does that sentence at the end of verse 15 make sense to you? He says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. I'm eager to come to the church in Rome and preach the gospel to you. I thought the gospel was supposed to be preached to unbelievers, not to believers. You know, it's five to twelve. Guys are killing me. The gospel message needs to be preached to believers. Often. Why? Because we are so slow to learn and so quick to forget. We are so quick to take for granted what God has done for us. We are so quick to forget the gospel message. The busyness of our lives, the distractions we live with, we forget. We forget the simple message that 2,000 years ago, the infinite, holy, righteous creator God chose in his infinite wisdom to send his one and only son to this planet. Stepping down the staircase, if I use the analogy of the poem I read. He sent his one and only son to this planet. And Jesus Christ lived a perfect, holy, sinless life. The life you and I could never live. And after 33 years in the divine wisdom and plan of God, Jesus went to a cross. Where he suffered and died a horrible, awful, ugly, painful, a whole bunch more adjectives I could throw in there. Death on the cross in your place and in my place. And three days later, he rose again from the dead as evidence that God the Father accepted that sacrifice and that payment for sin. And God's expectation, God's hope is that we would hear that message and respond in faith. The church needs to hear the gospel message. 
And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto what? Salvation. And that word power in the original language directly comes into our language with the word dynamite. It is the power of God, salvation. And so the gospel of necessity needs to be proclaimed. Um, and it's imperative. It is imperative that you and I understand it, hear it, and respond to it. On a scale of 1 to 10, how important is it to do that? 12, 15, 20? It's imp- and beyond, yes. And so Paul wants us to understand that we need God's righteousness. And Paul wants us to understand that the gospel message, the gospel is what leads us to understand what salvation is all about. And so Paul also has another word that he uses a lot. And he uses the word wrath six times in the three chapters we've been reading and studying with Pastor Ray. This jumped out at me about two or three weeks ago, Rick, in the middle of your message. The word wrath popped up, and I thought, huh. I wonder how often that word appears in these chapters. And so while Rick was talking about something, my mind's over here reading in Romans, looking for the words wrath. Because here's the reality in the world in which you and I live. We don't like to talk about God's wrath. I would rather not talk about God's wrath. I would rather talk about God's love, wouldn't you? And that's okay. We could talk about God's love. It's worthy of being talked about, right? Right? Okay, I just make sure you're still awake and with me. Because I'm the only one on Benadryl this morning, so I just... And so we live in a culture in which the necessity of having God's righteousness makes no sense. Why does it make no sense? Because people perceive themselves as being good people. I'm good. And I hear this all the time. He was a good man. I'm not sure what that always means, but, you know. She was a good woman. We live in a culture where everybody perceives themselves as being good. Why is that? Because they don't have the right standard. I see myself as really good because I compare myself to that guy over there. (laughs) I see myself as really being good because I compare myself to you. You see, we don't have the right standard. Because when we compare ourselves to God and to God's standard, guess what? I heard someone say the two words I was looking for. Fall short. One of the young ladies this morning read Romans 3.23. I think that's in the book of Romans. Didn't we go through there? Just Yeah. Romans 3.23 says what? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God has a standard. He's it. You and I don't measure up. Guess what? That is not good news. And so, I don't have time to do that either. Um, 
So, Friday or Saturday, I forget, I was on my bike ride. I don't ride my bike every day. You might get that impression sometimes. I wish. So I was on my, on my bike, and I saw this billboard I'd never noticed before, because I've driven by it numbers of times, but now I'm riding my bike, you know, at 14, 15 miles an hour instead of 35 or 40. And I saw this billboard, and it said, Texting and driving makes good people do bad things. And I thought, that's an interesting take on texting and driving. Because the underlying premise of that statement is what? People are basically good. And the standard tells us people basically are not good. And so the whole point of where Paul has gone Okay, so there's all these verses about wrath. God revealed his wrath against ungodliness and unrighteousness. Um, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience? The kindness of God leads us to repentance, right? You are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. What does the word storing up suggest to you? You're filling a box, you're filling a bucket, you're filling a bin. You know, my bin is really, really big. We're filling up. Because we've got the wrong standard. We don't measure up. And so Paul continues to talk about the law brings wrath. Why is that? You can't measure up to the law. You can't keep the law. The Ten Commandments. Uh, you know, have God number one in your life. How many of us do that 24-7, 365? Um, don't uh, take the Lord's name in vain. OMG. I'm really uncomfortable with that. You know, we take God's name, we take his person, and we kind of trivialize it. We make it frivolous. Um, And you know all the rest of them. You know, uh, honor father and mother. Um, That's tough for me today. Both my parents are in heaven. But the next ones I have challenges with, don't lie. You ever told a lie? Yeah. What do you call people who tell a lie? Yeah, I'm a liar too. Um, (laughs) Don't steal. You ever stole anything? Something small, something simple? Yeah, I'm guilty. Um, you know, don't commit adultery. Well, we say, no, I've never done that. I've never murdered. Yeah, well, the scriptures say if it happens in here in your heart, it happens. Right? And so we fail to measure up to the standard, and the law does what? Wrath. Uh, Paul's message is pretty strong. This is the one I like. You know, God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And it says we shall be saved from what? The wrath of God. Have you ever used the expression, I'm saved? I've been saved. You know, oftentimes, most, almost all the time, when we use that phrase, we use that expression, this isn't what we're thinking about. We're not thinking about being saved from God's righteous, holy, perfect anger against unrighteousness. Anybody else uncomfortable? Um, And so God's wrath is real. God's wrath is just. God's wrath is righteous. Um. Yeah. 
you guys are killing me. Come on. There it goes. So here's the big, the big, the big finale, the big climax. You ready? Yeah, your enthusiasm is so overwhelming. Jeez. We need a little electric charge through those cushions where you can hit a button up here and go, oh, hey. So you've been hearing this word justification over and over again. It's used multiple times in the book of Romans. Um, if I've counted correctly, justification, justify, justify, 17 times in the first five chapters. This is a key word in Paul's thinking. The word justification is a legal term. It's a courtroom term. It's the word that you would understand in the simple words that Pastor Rick has tried to tell us. Justification means to be declared righteous. To be justified means that God looks at you and says, righteous. Not because you are righteous, but because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and our faith and trust in Him, God declares us to be righteous. Justified. And basically what God is saying is, I declare you to measure up to the standard. Not because of what you do. Not because of some religious ritual, some religious routine, some penance that is done, some sum of money that's paid. But because the righteous, holy, perfect God chooses. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, His payment for sin. Chooses to respond to our faith. By declaring us to be righteous. And if you can't get excited about that, you're in deep, deep trouble. Oh, it's not the hearers of the law who are before God. It's the doers. You ever heard that? Be doers of the word, not hearers. Just hearing stuff doesn't matter. The works of the law, no flesh is going to be. You can't do enough good stuff. The average person I talk to about their relationship to God, they have this idea of kind of scales. The good stuff outweighs the bad, so I'm good to go, right? Wrong-o. There's still this bad stuff, right? Yeah, the, the works we can do, don't do it. Not adequate. All of sin falls short. Being Even those of us who have fallen short, that's all of us, right? Those of us who have fallen short, have come to faith, are being justified How? As a gift, freely, by God's grace. <laughs> These words are powerful. We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Uh, what, did, what did Abraham experience? Rick spent quite a bit of time talking to us, talking to us about the example of, of Abraham. And the basic truth in Abraham's life is this. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as Righteousness, not justified by works. Abraham believed God. It was credited to his account as righteousness. The one who works, his wage is just what, he's do- what he deserves, what he earns. Believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Faith is credited as what? Righteousness. Oh. 
So you and I, sinful, guilty people, desperately need God's righteousness. We need to be justified. We need to be declared righteous to come into union with a holy God. And that's why Romans 5.1 started off and said, Having been justified, we have peace with God. Relationship restored. What the Bible calls reconciliation. Being brought into harmony, into agreement. Anybody still reconcile your check account? Or you just kind of assume the bank's always right? You know, we reconcile our check account. We want to make sure the amount we think we have in the bank agrees with what the bank thinks we have. Uh, and hopefully that happens regularly, right? Reconciliation. You know, it's an amazing thing. When you and I owe a debt, which basically we have this debt of unrighteousness in our lives. When we owe a debt and pay it off, our debt is cleared. There's nothing there, right? The amazing thing that God does is when he clears the slate, he puts into the positive side of the account. You have debits and you have Credits into the credit side of your account, guess what God does? He puts the righteousness of His Son, Jesus. And that's why God can look at you and me and declare that we measure up. We're righteous. In our culture, we have a judicial system, which is basically pretty good. It's not without flaw. But in our judicial system, if you commit a felony... And come into a courtroom. And in that courtroom, it is determined that you are indeed guilty. And the judge passes sentence. And you are taken away in chains to prison. <sighs> Thankfully, I've never been there done that. <laughs> Not saying I don't deserve it. Um, but when you serve your time and your debt to society is paid... And you are released from prison back into society. Your debt has been paid. And from that moment on in our judicial system, guess what? If you go look for a job, having been released from prison, having paid your debt, and I get on the line and I do a background check, guess what I'm going to find? A complete record of your crime or crimes. Never goes away. Uh, you and I had a conversation this week, and I could go on, uh, for, and it was an awesome conversation. I hope you'll share the story, because um, it's not my story to tell. Where was I? In our judicial system, background check. In God's system, guess what? If a background check is done, guess what they find? Nothing, except God's righteousness. Someone got the right answer over here. They find Nothing. Except God's righteousness. And so, I want you to imagine yourself. We've got time to do this in three minutes. We're going to find out. I want you to imagine yourself this morning in a courtroom. If it helps you to close your eyes, do that. See yourself standing before this big wooden desk, huge wooden desk. See the judge behind that desk in his black robe. See him pointing his index finger at you and saying, Your first name... Or he may be kind and say, Mr. or Miss, your last name. But he points to you and he says your name. And he says, I find you guilty and I sentence you to death. 
The back door of the courtroom opens. A stranger walks in, someone you've never met, don't know. Walks up to the front of the courtroom and tells the judge that he's willing to be your substitute, to die in your place. So you don't have to. That's what God did for you and me. That's what he did. And yet, we just kind of take that so casually. That's why the gospel needs to be preached. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. You and I are able to measure up. Because God chooses to give us his righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus credited to your account and my account. And God says, you're declared righteous. I had a conversation with a woman several years ago. We were street preaching outside of a movie theater in a big mall in West Covina. And I had finished preaching and this woman approached me and we had conversation and I had opportunity to share the gospel, clarify some questions she had and I talked to her about grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. And she said to me these words, Jesus is not enough. You know, many people live their lives that way. We might think or say that Jesus is enough, but we're always looking to add to it. Add what I can do. You know, in the, in the Mormon theology, that's kind of how it works. You do everything that you can do and bless God. He does the rest. That's not how it works in God's system. In God's system, you and I do what? Nothing. God does it all. (laughs) That's an amazing God. He does it all. Grace alone. Faith alone. Christ alone. So what? So when we started... I told you that if you would get your hands wrapped around the truths of the book of Romans, your life could be transformed. And so my question for you this morning is, has your life been forever changed by the grace of God? Faith alone. In Christ alone. And if you're not sure that God has declared you righteous and that you measure up, And he declares that you're forgiven. You're his child. Heaven is a gift that awaits. He's gift. If you're not sure, you want that's something pretty important to make sure of, isn't it? And I encourage you to talk to somebody this morning. Don't walk out of this place without having a conversation. And if you are sure, God has declared you to be righteous. Uh, We used to sing that song. If you're saved, then you know it. Yeah, I don't want you to clap your hands this morning. So, if you're saved and you know it, my first thought is this. Come on, there you go. Let your face know. You know, some Christians are the saddest. um, You know, and we come to church on Sunday to celebrate what God has done for us. And we just kind of sit back and take it casual and, you know... Um, I've been to some really loud churches where the music is so overpowering. I hate that. Why? I want to hear people singing and praising God. I don't want to hear the act on the stage going at you know 300 decibels beyond my ability to hear. 
We ought to come in here on Sunday morning with the joy of the Lord, anxious to celebrate with God's people. As Rick says, not just going through the motions. Let your face know it. Worship God at home. You know, the first two songs we started with this morning are two of my favorite songs. My favorite songs are usually songs that are simple that I can remember and sing. And I like to sing when I'm riding my bike. And those two song, first two songs we sang this morning, I sang yesterday. I love those songs. Let your face know it. Um, don't just come in here on Sunday morning and just kind of, you know, got to go to church again. Yeah, we've got to stand up again for a half an hour. Let your life show it. If God has stepped into your life, come down that staircase, sent His Son, He's died in your place, you're forgiven, you now measure up, you ought to live life differently, shouldn't you? And that's where Pastor Rick's going to go next week in chapter 6, because chapter 6 opens with these words. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be! How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So because of what Jesus has done, our lives should demonstrate it, should put his righteousness on display. The behaviors and habits of my life, the beliefs and convictions of my life, the thoughts that fill my heart and mind. I know I'm over time. Take a deep breath. I'm almost done. Let your voice bestow it. I was looking for words that rhyme. Um, So if God has done all this for us. And if the people around us, our relatives, our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, all find themselves under the shadow of not measuring up and God's wrath that's being stored up, don't they need to hear the good news? That that was a rousing yes. Um, Gee, they need to hear the good news. They need to hear your story of what God has done in your life. They need to hear it. And I could go on and on, but... You get the point. Um, Let your heart grow it. You know, it bothers me a lot when I encounter Christians that carry grudges, that can't find it in themselves to forgive. Look what God has done for us. By His grace, not because we earned it, not because we deserved it, not because we did good stuff. By His grace, He forgave us and cleansed us and gave us eternal life. By His grace, it's all by His grace. So how come we find it so hard to give grace to others? Why is it we find it so hard to forgive others? Have you ever been wronged? Yeah, me too. You ever been disappointed by something someone else did? Me too. You ever been injured by somebody else financially, physically? Emotionally, fill in the blanks. And we struggle to extend grace. We struggle to extend grace in churches of all places. There's been times in my life as a pastor where I've failed. I've disappointed people. I've maybe made mistakes. I've made bad decisions. Has that ever happened to you? You ever made a bad decision? All the time. How do you learn to make good decisions? By making bad ones. And so... What I want to say here is God's grace. We ought, we ought to be the most gracious, forgiving 
people on the planet. Why? Because the righteous and holy God has done all that for me and for you. Lord, thank you that in your righteous, holy, infinite wisdom, you stepped down and loved each one of us. You stepped down from the glories of heaven. You sent your one and only son as a sacrifice to die in our place. The death we should have died, the debt we owed, he did not, paid in full. And so we stand today as recipients of your grace, recipients of your forgiveness, and you've given to us righteousness. You've declared us to be right. You've declared that we measure up. And our only response is to say, thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you.
Father, thank you so much for allowing us to come into this place another Sunday. Thank you so much for speaking into our lives. Thank you for the, the opportunity to hear words of life. Thank you for righteousness found only in Jesus Christ. Thank you for declaring us righteous, for allowing us to be free and to be free indeed, to be cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Thank you for worship today as well, Father, for allowing us to come into this place and to shout praise unto you. We thank you for the fact that you are our Heavenly Father and you are worthy to be praised. Bless us, Father God, as we go our separate ways. Uh, be with us throughout this, uh, the remainder part of this day and certainly be with us throughout this week. Father, bless us and keep us in your presence always until we meet again in this place. These things we pray in Jesus' name and God's people say, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. I love you. Love you all very much. Please keep me in your prayers.